0: Listening to Classics and Chill This is our second edition of the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus and if you haven't listened to the first three premises with their sub premises then you want to watch or listen to the first podcast where we read some of the foundational a priori truths upon which the rest of the book will be based Um, I'm certainly enjoying this. I selected Wittgenstein because of his um, approach to language. Obviously, I've been working really hard this year to focus our readings on the future of data science, machine learning, and AI. And I think Wittgenstein's approach to names and categories... But it's, it's actually not, it's not even wrong to think about Kant. It, I think we're talking about an evolution, an evolution of Kantian uh, epistemology. When we talk about Stein, and I, you know what? They can, I, I'm sure if I were a professor, I would have just gotten fired for saying that. I'm sure there's some nuance I'm missing. But anyway, it's been il- illuminating as far as what are truths and um, what, what exactly we are saying when we speak what can be known and how can we know it so I guess we'll just pick up where we left off and move forward with the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus we'll start with 3.3 premise and uh, move along we're on page 36 of the Project Gutenberg ebook as well so if you want to follow along this might actually be the type of text that you follow along with boy will this podcast be great for like people on planes who can't sleep or like babies with colic it certainly is a sleeper but i think these premises are really important and i think that they lead to further truths and they're the foundational linguistic epistemological theories upon which our whole structure of data science and and you know machine learning are based so we're all just going to put in the effort with this thanks for listening Without further ado, part two of the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus by Ludwig, Ludwig Wittgenstein. <laughs> the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, part two, premise three point three. Only the proposition has sense, only in the context of a proposition has a name meaning. Every part of the proposition, which characterizes its sense, I call an expression, a symbol. The proposition itself is an expression. Expressions are everything, essential for the sense of proposition that propositions can have in common with one another. An expression characterizes a form An expression presupposes the forms of all propositions in which they can occur. It is the common characteristic mark of a class of propositions. It is therefore represented by the general form of the propositions which it characterizes. And in this form, the expression is constant and everything else is variable. An expression is thus presented by a variable whose values are the propositions which contain in the expression. In the limiting case, the variables become constants. The expression, a proposition. I will call such a variable, a propositional variable. So we have a definition there. Propositional variable is a variable such that um, the variable becomes a constant causing the expression to become a proposition. So expressions are all manner of ways of expressing content, and then certain variables create propositions. This is the limiting case, so it's um, definitional, I think, in nature. I'm learning with you. So um, let's keep going. But if you have any thoughts about interpretation, I'd love to hear from you. An expression has meaning only in a proposition. Every variable can be conceived as a propositional variable, including the variable name. If we change a a constituent part of a proposition into a variable, there's a class of propositions which are the values of the resulting variable proposition. This class in general still depends on what, by arbitrary agreement, we mean by the parts of that proposition. But if we change all those things, whose meaning was arbitrarily determined into variables? There are there always remains such a class, but this is how no longer dependent on any argument. It depends only on the nature of the proposition. It corresponds to a logical form, to a logical prototype. What values the propositional variable can assume is determined. The determination of the values is the variable. The determination of the values of a propositional variable is done by indicating the propositions whose common mark the variable is determination is a description of those propositions. The determination will therefore deal only with symbols, not with their meaning. And only this is essential to the determination. That it is only a description of symbols and asserts nothing about what is symbolized. The way in which we describe propositions is not essential. Guys, 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 guys. That's really important. That's actually really important. Um, That's true. That's the imitation game. That's functional, what is it called when we talk about like the the functionalist uh, argument for epistemology. That's it, right? We're only dealing with the symbols, not with their meaning. Because propositions are not essential. That's important. All right, everybody, let's go home. I'm kidding. I conceive the proposition, like Frege and Russell, as a function of the expressions contained in it. Okay, good. Um, The sign is the part of the symbol perceptible by the senses. Two different symbols can therefore have the sign, the written sign or the sound sign, in common. They then signify in different ways. It can never indicate the common characteristic of two objects that we symbolize them with the same signs, but by different methods of symbolizing, for the sign is arbitrary. We could therefore equally choose two different signs where then would be what was common in the symbolization. The language of everyday life, it is very often happens that the same word signifies in two different ways, therefore belongs to two different symbols. Or that two words which signify in different ways are apparently applied the same way to the proposition. This is important too. This is so important as far as like NLP, but I feel like we kind of like uh, have solved this problem in many ways when you talk about like Venus and the morning star and like they're two different names symbolizing the same star, but I think we're getting there. Okay. Thus a word, let's start this whole proposition from the beginning. I will save my excited commentary and we'll just work through it. In the language of everyday life, it very often happens that the same word signifies in two different ways and therefore belongs in two different symbols or that two words which signify in different ways are apparently applied in the same way in the proposition. Thus, the word is appears as the copula, as the sign of equality, and as the expression of existence. To exist as an intransitive verb like to go, identical as an adjective, we speak of something, but also the fact of something happening. So is, the word is, People do this with the F word too, but let's just use the word is because it's like a little bit nicer. But is is a state of being, I am, I exist, and an equality. In the proposition green is green, where the first word is a proper name and the last an adjective, these words have not merely different meanings, but they are different symbols thus there easily arise the most fundamental confusions of which the whole of philosophy is full pack it in boys let's go home in order to avoid these errors we must employ a symbolism which excludes them by not applying the same sign in different symbols and by not applying signs in the same way which signify in different ways a symbolism that is to say which obeys the rules of logical grammar of logical syntax The logical symbolism of Frege and Russell is such a language which, however, does still not exclude all errors. Did he just, like, shade his friends a little bit? Like, alright, we're gonna use logical symbolism, which means, uh, one-to-one, rigid designation. But, uh, even though my friends tried that, they didn't, like, do a great job. Thanks, Vickensene, you're a treat to have at a party. Okay. In order to recognize the symbol and the sign, we must consider the significant use. The sign determines a logical form only together with its logical syntactic application. If a sign is not necessary, then it is meaningless. That is the meaning of Occam's razor. If everything in a symbolism works as though the sign had meaning, then it has meaning. In logical syntax, the meaning of a sign ought never be to play a role. It must admit of being established, without mention being thereby made of the meaning of a sign. It ought to presuppose only the description of the expression. From this observation, we get a further view into Russell's theory of types. Russell's error is shown by the fact that in drawing up his symbolic rules, he has to speak of the meaning of the signs. And and remember, Vicocinus is a divorcing symbol from that which is signified from the sign. No proposition can say anything about itself because the propositional sign cannot be contained in itself. That is the whole theory of types. A function cannot be its own argument because the functional sign already contains the prototype of its own argument and it cannot contain itself. If, for example, we suppose that the function f of x could be its own argument, then there would be a preposition f, f, f function f of x. And in the outer function f and the inner function f must have different meanings for the inner has the form, not f of x in the outer form. Common to Lost my way. Oh, okay, so that, okay, here we go. Common to both functions is only the letter f, which by itself signifies nothing. This is at once clear. Instead of f, f of u, we write backwards e equals fu. Here with Russell's paradox vanishes. So, Wittgenstein is talking about you can't signify something that's already in the proposition. Which is why you have the issues here solved by different symbols inside of the same equation. You really gotta look at this one like on the paper. It's mathy, but he's he's dealing with Russell's paradox. The rules of logical syntax must follow themselves The rules of logical syntax must follow of themselves if we only know how every single sign signifies. A proposition possesses essential and accidental features. Accidental are the features which are due to a particular way of producing a propositional sign. Essential are those which alone enable the proposition to express its sense. Accidental and essential, that's a distinction. Let's go through them again. Accidental are features which are due in a particular way of producing the propositional sign and essential are those which alone enable the proposition to express its sense. The essential in a proposition is therefore that which is common to all propositions which can express the same sense, and in the same way, in general, the essential in a symbol is that which all symbols, which can fulfill the same purpose, have in common. One could therefore say the real name is that which all symbols which signify an object have in common. It would then follow step by step that no sort of composition was essential for a name. In our notations, there is indeed something arbitrary, but this is not arbitrary. Namely, that if we have determined anything arbitrarily, then something else must be the case. This results from the essence of the notation. Okay, I, I wanna pause. I'm noticing a, a theme trend. I haven't read Frikenstein since, golly. End of undergraduate with Thomas Magnell. Shout out to uh, Dr. Mcnell. I think you're great. Um, form over meaning. There's an essential truth to the form of a proposition. That truth is found in the form of a proposition. Tested in the form of a proposition. This is so important. You know, he, you got to think about this they didn't have visual basic, right? They didn't even, they like before visual basic, we had to rely on this type of philosophy to say, hey, if a machine should think and, and communicate, what things would it have to do for that to be meaningful? We could never have like foreseen how much of the natural world couldn't be, I'm saying perceived, processed by a machine. So we had to determine what are the rules of it being meaningful first. It's really amazing what these philosophers were able to do. Anyway, form. The rules of logical syntax must follow up themselves if we only know how every sign signifies. In our notations, there is indeed something arbitrary, but this is not arbitrary, namely that if we have determined anything arbitrarily, then something else must be the case. This results from the essence of the notation. That's interesting too, because, you know, from my rudimentary understanding of like what Bayesian Reasoning is, you know, we have to add our, our notions of probability into the model. And Vicky machine is telling us that, like, look, if we have to add inference, then something else must be the case, and our model doesn't encompass all truth. But if we create a clean, a clean enough, true enough, essential enough form, we would not have to, add, nothing else would have to be the case. And, and remember, if nothing else is the case, then we have an a priori truth, which results only from the form of the argument. These are my words, not Regenstein's. Let me start again. A particular method of symbolizing may be unimportant, but it's also important that this is a possible method of symbolizing. And this happens as a rule in philosophy. The single thing proves over and over again to be unimportant but the possibility of every single thing reveals something about the nature of the world. The single thing proves over, we're doing it again. The single thing proves over and over again to be unimportant, but the possibility of every single thing reveals something about the nature of the world. What does the line, like, approach? What is the limit? And remember, in the limit, we find the essential essential variable, which is the proposition. The truth is the limit. Oh, this girl is on fire. Okay, sorry. Um, definitions are rules for the translation of one language into another. True. Every correct symbolism must be translatable into every other according to such rules. True. It is this which all have in common. What signifies in the symbol is what is common to all of the symbols by which it can be replaced according to the rules of logical syntax. Form over meaning. Okay, I'm sorry, I get so excited about this stuff. We can, for example, express what is common to all notations for the truth functions as follows. It is common to them that they all, for example, can be replaced by the notations not P and P or Q. Herewith is indicated the way in which special possible notation can give us general information. We're doing symbolic logic. First order logic, baby. Get your little pyramid and your little V ready. All right. The sign of the complex is not arbitrarily resolved in the analysis in such a way that it resolution would be different in every propositional structure. The proposition determines a place in logical space. The existence of the logical place is guaranteed by the existence of the constituent parts alone, by the existence of the significant proposition. The propositional sign and the logical coordinates that is the logical place. The geometrical and logical place agree in that each is the possibility of an existence. Although a proposition may only determine one place in logical space, the whole logical space must already be given by it. Otherwise, denial, the logical sum, the logical product, etc., would always introduce new elements in coordination. Remember, remember, this, this is why we do the early premises early. To know something is to know everything about a something, right? That's the, if you know something, then you know the po- every single detail of logical space includes the possibility of something being in that spot where it is by definition. (sighs) The applied, thought, propositional sign is the thought. The thought is the significant proposition. The totality of propositions is the language. Man possesses the capacity of constructing languages in which every sense can be expressed without having an idea how and what each word means, just as one speaks without knowing how the single sounds are produced get it Ludwig colloquial language is a part of the human organism and is not less complicated than it from it it is humanly impossible to gather immediately the logic of language logic disguises the thought so that the form of the external form of the clothes one cannot infer the form of the thought they clothe, because the external form of the clothes is constructed with quite another object than to let the form of the body be recognized. The silent adjustments to understand colloquial language are enormously complicated. Oh my God, that's natural language processing. The silent adjustments to understand colloquial language are enormously complicated. Side note, I just had a conversation in my work life with the head of data and analytics for a massive logistics and transportation company that is based very much in NLP. They got their their real start with with some tremendous work in NLP. And he was laughing because he and I were talking around a subject about which we had very little clarity, Um, mostly because the actual headcount numbers and actual strategy had yet to be defined. And so we were talking in so many analogies, and finally we were like, we're just using analogies because we have literally no idea what's going on. And he was like, yeah, he's like, me too. I'm just... We're just, okay, like colloquial language in part is built to smooth the cracks where logic cannot lie, to live in the maybe and the uncertainty because we must in many ways express uncertainty still. And here's the watch cry of my machine learning engineers. The silent adjustments to understand colloquial language are enormously complicated. Understatement of the 20th century, probably. Most propositions and questions that have been written about philosophical matters are not false, but senseless. We cannot therefore answer questions of this kind at all, but only state their senselessness. Most questions and propositions of the philosophers result from the fact that we do not understand the logic of our language, They are the same kind as the question of whether the good is more or less identical than the beautiful. And so it is not to be wondered at the deepest problems are really no problems. This is like, I was kind of a pill in philosophy and like 30 PhDs at Columbia, NYU and Drew University and one at Yale, all just agreed. I hated listening to people's arguments in class and just looking at it and being like, that's not a syllogism. It's not a well-defined argument. I would, as they were making their comments, be writing their arguments down in symbolic logic, which for me is my love language. So I'd be like writing their arguments down and be like, you just defined that term in two ways within the same argument. So I don't even care if any of your premises are true. Your arguments won't sound. Like, I don't even need to debate whether or not any of the things you've said have veracity because it's not a sound argument. We don't need to go to step two. And yeah, it wasn't really fun to be in my class because I was a, kind of a jerk like that. But this is what Wittgenstein's saying. Like, we're, we're not using our language to the extent of presenting logically and that our language often obscures the logic of our, of our language. Our language often obscures the logic of our arguments. And there's a lot of flex room in, you know, poets call it like slant rhymes. where like, yeah, like day and dismay, you know, probably rhyme, but they're, they're not the same meter, right? But you can get away with it. Um, we can use good and beautiful and fudge the meanings a little bit and come up with an argument that we think has created a philosophical problem or even th- insight. But the truth is we're just using language, floppy. Oh boy, this is so good, guys. I'm so glad we got the part two. All philosophy is critique of language, but not at all in Maltner's sense. Russell's merit is to have shown that the apparent logical form of the proposition need not be its real form. The proposition is a picture of reality. The proposition is a model of the reality as we think it is. At the first glance, the proposition, say as it stands printed on a paper, does not seem to be a picture of the reality which it treats, nor does the musical score appear at first sight to be a picture of a musical piece, nor does our phonetic spelling letters seem to be a picture of our spoken language. And yet these symbol, nope, and yet these symbolisms prove to be pictures even in the ordinary sense of the word of what they represent. It is obvious that we perceive a proposition in the form A or B as a picture. Here, the sign is obviously a to the signified. If we penetrate to the essence of the pictorial nature, I think it's A represents B, we see that this is not disturbed by apparent irregularities like the use of a sharp or a flat in the score. For these oralities, irregularities also picture what they are to express only in another way the gramophone record the musical thought the score the weaves of sound all stand to one another in that pictorial internal relation which holds between language and world to all of them the logical structure is common like the two youths their horse and their lilies in the story they are all in a certain sense one i have no idea what that aside stands for like the two youths their Two horses and their lilies in the story, they all are in a certain sense one. But I really wanna say that like Joe Pesci, like the two youths. That's all. I don't get that part. In the fact that there is a general rule by which the musician is able to read the symphony symph- <laughs> Let's start again, I got overexcited. In the fact that there is a general rule by which the musician is able to read the symphony out of the score, and that there is a rule by which one can reconstruct the symphony from the line on the gramophone record, and from this again, by means of the first rule, constructs, construct the score. Herein lies the internal similarity between these things, which at first sight seem to be entirely different. And the rule is the law of projection, which projects the symphony into the language of the musical score. It is the rule of translation of this language into the language of the gramophone record. All right, so this is saying all different languages kind of have this internal logic and and however you express the same thing, the internal logic maps. So, you know, you see the music written down, that's one way of representing the thing, which is the music. And then you play the music and you hear the sound waves. It's another way to represent the musical thought. And then by hearing those sound waves, some people like my sister Bridget can hear those and then like write the notes back down, like some type of Rain Man. Okay, so so Amadeus could do that too. So you, you can map forward from musical note to symphony. You can map backward from musical sound to notation. You can read a recipe and make a dish or you can taste a dish and if you're an amazing chef, write the recipe. That's kind of it. (sighs) The possibility of all similes, of all the imagery of our language rests on the logic of representation. Let's stop there because I'm beyond excited. I think we are in a really good place and it leaves us a really good, like something to hold on to. And um, you know, this is great. This really heated up for me, guys. I gotta be honest, part one was a little bit harder, but Part two feels good, feels really good. We've got probably three more parts or 10 more parts. Remains to be seen. Anyway, thanks for listening. See you soon.